Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English Study Group, and we're in Volume 3, Chapters 31 through 40. The way that this program is set up is we will typically do some brief meditation prior to the class. As we go forward after meditation, we will read each individual chapter to help you to understand the words of the Buddha. And then I will share teachings on that particular chapter and open up to any questions that you guys might have. As part of this program, students will oftentimes be reading these books prior to class because what you have in these books is you have the words of the Buddha, you have a reference to go back to his original source teachings, and then you have the reflections that I'm sharing to help you further understand and reflect on the teachings to gain the benefit of how to apply them in your actual life. So by you downloading the books or downloading and printing or ordering printed versions or Kindle versions of these from Amazon, you'll be able to access the chapters prior to class and you'll actually get more benefit out of coming to the class. This is more like a study group where students are coming together to actually study the words of the Buddha versus a teacher doing a full out discourse like I do in the group learning program. This Pali Canon and English study group, we go from volumes two through volumes 13 of this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. In our group learning program, we go through volume one. And the group learning program is a seven month program. And oftentimes students will take that more than once. The Pali Canon in English study group is a year and a half program. And again, students will oftentimes take that more than once. And you can come and go out of these programs however you like. So I'd like to just welcome all of you guys who are joining, whether it's your first time or you've been joining regularly. And at the same time, invite you to join for meditation, just a brief little meditation to help prepare the mind for study. So if you'd like to take a position, either seated, lying, or standing, and then as you make your body comfortable, ensure that the body is completely relaxed. And then the upper body, if you're sitting, should be erect. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. You're welcome to join in with these chants if you like, if you know these, or you can just hang out here in your meditation position with the breath and I'll be back with some more guidance to help you get further into your meditation. Sawakato, <laughs> 
Damang namasami Supati pano makawato Sawaka sangko Sangkang namami Napmo rasa pakawato completely relaxed in the upper body erect the eyes closed just our breathing in through the nose and out through the nose here you're just establishing the breath breathing in gradually through the nose experiencing the full breath and whenever you get to it exhale out through the nose Establishing a nice, natural, steady, consistent breath. Breathing in. And out. With the breath established, start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath. Either the sound coming into the nose or the sensation of air moving into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. With the mind fixated on the breath, Whenever you notice that the mind moves off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. No need to observe the thought, label it, judge it, analyze it, 
or even try to figure out where it's coming from. Wherever you notice that the mind is moved off the breath, just cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. I'm going to be quiet now and let you focus on the breath. Cutting off and letting go anytime the mind moves off the breath. Breathing in and out.
to make your way out of meditation we'll go ahead and transition over to the learning part of our class where we're reading and studying the words of the Buddha in order to understand his teachings and then as you guys would like to seek guidance on these you'll seek guidance I'll be able to share teachings with you related to each individual chapter but as you guys learn these, either prior to class or in class, it's important for you to be able to ask questions and get clarification. So I'll make sure that we have time for that. You can put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section, and I'll be able to see your questions there. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow up questions directly. So this first chapter, is there anybody in Zoom who would like to read this first chapter? Um, I will try. Okay, wonderful. Um, Ponya. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter um, 31. Firming desire is the root of discontentedness. Whatever discontentedness arose in the past, all that's a root rooted in craving desire, with 
craving desire at its source. For craving desire is the root of discontentedness. Whatever discontentedness will arise in the future, all that will arise rooted in craving desire. With craving desire at its source, for craving desire is the root of discontentedness. Whatever discontentedness arises, all that is rooted in craving desire. As craving desire at its source, for craving desire is the root of discontentedness. All right. Yes. Thank, thank you, Panya. So here, the Buddha is further elaborating, essentially really honing in on what he describes in the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths is the very first teaching that one would need to understand in order to get to enlightenment and even just start this journey, where you understand the problem in the unenlightened mind is discontentedness. The cause of that problem is craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing and strong eagerness, the mind's craving for things to be permanent. You understand the elimination of the problem is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And we use breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity in order to do that. That's part of the training. And then the fourth noble truth is the way forward to completely eliminate all discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. So in the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha is helping you to understand in four simple statements, the problem, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. Where here he's just focusing in on what is actually causing these discontent feelings because if you didn't understand what the cause was, you wouldn't actually be able to eliminate them. So you need to understand the cause in order to eliminate them. And the cause of all discontent feelings is craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing and strong eagerness. The enlightened mental state, one doesn't have any craving, desire, attachment, wants, expectations, clinging, this longing and yearning, the mind has eliminated all of that. So the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing any discontent feelings. So here the Buddha is saying any discontentedness you or anybody else has experienced in the past, it's because of craving, desire, attachment. Anything that you or other people may experience in the future is because of craving, desire, attachment. Any discontentedness you're experiencing in the present moment is because of craving, desire, attachment. And you can reflect on this and independently verify it and see that it's true that in all situations where you've experienced discontentedness, it's the mind's own craving, desire, attachment that's causing this. So any questions on this particular chapter? Again, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be able to see those and answer the questions for you. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions in Facebook or YouTube or Zoom. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 32. Would somebody like to read this chapter? I will try. <laughs> okay, I can also help too, Panya. If, if you and I would like to alternate, I can read one chapter, you can read one, we can go back and forth if you like. Yes, um, seven principles to uh, prosper and not decline. Brahmin, if the what chains, I'm not sure what I can call, what chains keep these seven principles as long as these principles remain in force. The Watsons may be predicted to prosper and not decline. The following are the seven principles that the Tathagata said to Venerable Ananda in the presence of Vasakara Pramin. First, Ananda 
the Watson's whole regular and frequent assemblies. Second, Ananda, the Watson means in harmony, break up in harmony, and carry on their business in harmony. Third, Ananda, the Watson's do not authorize what has not been authorized already, and do not abolish what has been authorized but proceeds according to what has been authorized by their ancient tradition. Fourth, Ananda, the Vatians honor, respect, revere, and salute the elders among them, and consider them worth listening to. Fifth, Ananda, the Vatians do not forcibly abduct others, wives, and daughters and compel them to live with them. Six, Ananda, the Vatians honor, respect, revere, and salute the Vatians' choice at home and abroad, not withdrawing the proper support made and given before. Seven, Ananda, the Vatians make proper provision for the safety of Arahants so that such arrangements may come in the future to live there, and those already there may reside in comfort. Ananda, so long as they keep these principles, the Vatians may be protected to prosper and not decline. Okay, thank you, Panya. So here, the Buddha is sharing something in detail based on the natural law of gamma of cause and effect or action and result that helps a population of people to prosper and not decline let me walk through and help you understand a few things in order to understand this chapter first the word brahmin is an individual this is essentially a hindu priest who is practicing in order to help others and help others to improve their life and during the lifetime of the buddha having grown up into a Hindu environment, there would have been various Brahmin priests that were around in the community sharing certain things that help the villagers and the people to learn and understand how to live a better life. So oftentimes the Buddha came in contact with Brahmin and Brahmin would actually come and seek guidance from the Buddha to understand his teachings because there were certain things that he understood that the Brahmin didn't understand. The next thing to understand here is that the Buddha oftentimes refer to himself as the Tathagata rather than a Buddha. What the Tathagata means is the one who's discovered the truth or one who shares the truth. Because what a Buddha does is they independently discover the teachings that lead to enlightenment without the help of any teachers or any guides. They then dedicate the rest of their life to sharing those teachings with countless other people. And during their lifetime, countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime because their wisdom is so deep and profound. And then they preserve the teachings in such a way that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. This is what makes a Buddha a Buddha. They independently discover the teachings. They dedicate the rest of their life to sharing those teachings with countless people and countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then they preserve their teachings in such a way that others can get to enlightenment after their death. So they've discovered the truth and they share the truth. They are a Tathagata. And it's very rare for a Tathagata to exist in the world. There are some places that will tell you that everybody's a Buddha. 
But the Buddha himself did not say this. He did not refer to everybody as a Buddha. He did not refer to every enlightened being as a Buddha. Instead, he taught what enlightened beings are and how they're different from what an actual Buddha experiences. A Buddha is very rare in the world, and the last one that the world's currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. Then the Buddha here is talking to Ananda. Ananda is one of the Buddha's closest students. He was with the Buddha pretty much his entire 45 years of teaching. And it's reported that he was either a cousin or perhaps a brother-in-law to the Buddha. He was essentially a family member. Most people think that he was a cousin, but there's a few that will say that he was a brother-in-law. But nonetheless, he was a family member. And family members learning from other family members oftentimes are much more dedicated in their learning than maybe just an average student. So Ananda, having been with the Buddha throughout his entire 45-year teaching career, he was with the Buddha and heard a lot of his teachings and committed those to memory. And he's the one who is accredited with having remembered the teachings in such detail. And he was one of the primary people that helped to document the teachings after the death of the Buddha. So if it wasn't for Ananda, we may not even be actually learning the teachings of the Buddha right now. He's a primary reason why the teachings were captured and preserved. And this is why a lot of the discourses will reference Ananda because Ananda was the one who was recounting these teachings and he was sharing what the Buddha taught during the times that he was around the Buddha. Of course, all the other enlightened beings during the lifetime of the Buddha would remember the teachings and understand them. But Ananda was credited with this deep, profound memory, being able to remember countless teachings. And that was made easier because during the lifetime of the Buddha, he had his students recite the teachings every two weeks. That's how chanting came about, is that they would chant the teachings. So after the Buddha would deliver a discourse, the students every two weeks would be reciting his teachings word for word for word for word for word to commit them to memory. So Ananda did this for 45 years, every two weeks essentially, and that's why when the Buddha died, his students were able to remember the teachings and the Buddha ensured that this was possible, that people were able to remember his teachings. So here, the Buddha is explaining through the natural law of karma that a population of people, here the Vajans, or however we would like to pronounce that word, hold regular and frequent meetings, essentially. This population of people would come together and they would meet and they would talk and they would have discussions. So this is one criteria or principles that leads to the prosperous nature of a certain population. When they meet, they meet in harmony, they break up or in the meeting in harmony, and they carry on and conduct their business in harmony. There's not hostility and aggression and argumentative speech and bitterness and things like this, but there's harmony when they're meeting, when they're breaking up, and when they're carrying on their business. They're conducting that in harmony. The third thing that he's talking about here is he's and also connected to the fourth as well is he talks about the Vajans do not authorize what has not been authorized already and do not abolish what has been authorized, but proceed according to what has been authorized by their ancient tradition. Um, here, what he's essentially talking about is this next one, which is the elders of a certain community are going to cultivate certain wisdom. And this wisdom that elders cultivate, it gets carried on to the next generation where the next generation is then able to build upon that wisdom and be able to then share more and more because they're building upon that wisdom of any particular thing in the world. So let's just take something simple. Way, 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 way long in the past, 
our ancestors rubbed two sticks together and made fire, right? They figured out how to make fire, essentially. And now, in this present time, we can make fire at the snap of a finger by clicking a lighter, by lighting a match. We've figured out how to make creating fire much easier. But if it wasn't for the elders that existed long, long time ago, rubbing two sticks together, creating fire, we wouldn't have been able to make our lighters and our matches and other devices that create fire and produce a spark or a fire. That's all based on the elders having developed certain wisdom. So sometimes in certain communities, they degrade elders or they look down on older people because they've aged, maybe they're sick, maybe their mind isn't quite as sharp, maybe they're kind of older and decrepit and kind of harder to get around. And a younger generation might look at that and think they're weak and they're frail and they might look down on, on these individuals. But instead, what a population of people should do is do what the Buddha is teaching here, which is honor, respect, revere, and salute the elders of their community. Even if you disagree with certain things that they say or certain things that they do, nonetheless, they did certain things in their life and contributed to certain things in the world that have helped and benefited all of us, or else we wouldn't be able to have the things that we have in life. I mean, whether it's clothing or food or water, certain systems and medical care and all these different things that we experience and sometimes maybe even take for granted it's all based on the development of wisdom from our elders so it's wise to do what the buddha is sharing here which is not abolishing things that we already understand things that we've already learned things that we've already come to understand and certain wisdom not to degrade that and abolish that but instead to honor, respect, and revere or salute the elders who have essentially cultivated certain wisdom in our community that we've just built upon. So sometimes when we look back at elders and we're like, they rubbed two sticks together? Are you serious? That's how they made fire? It's so easy for us. But it wouldn't be so easy for us if those people didn't actually rub sticks together for us to figure out that there is such thing as fire. So when we're around elders, you should always be respectful always look to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, opening doors for elders, helping them, doing things that makes their life just a little bit easier because they've done things in their life that is helping us to make our life easier. So now that we're young, we're vibrant, we have full command and faculty of our body, then we can do things that will help elders to make it a little bit easy for them to live out the rest of their years in peace and comfort. This is an interesting one, number five. It kind of gives us some insight into what was going on at the time. It sounds like that during the time, there must have been other people who were abducting people's wives and daughters and compelling them to live with them. Where today, we've learned that, yeah, this is extremely unwise. This is why, in general, you know, kidnapping is illegal. It's also illegal to rape or forcibly have sex with somebody. And it would be very unwise for any population of people to have that going on, whether it's with wives and daughters or husbands and sons, that we should not forcibly do anything to anybody, particularly compelling them to live with us. So the human laws in this case have pretty much in most countries explained that yes, it's illegal to kidnap people and forcibly have sex with people. But even if that wasn't the case, you know, we should understand the wisdom behind this, that it would be very unwise for us to do that kind of thing because causing that harm, harm is going to come back to us. Then the Buddha talks about here where this population of people honor, respect, revere, and salute essentially their temples and their places of 
community, the places where they come together in order to learn teachings and gain wisdom. Here it's being translated as shrines. We might consider that churches or temples or synagogues or mosques or things like this, that it's wise for us to support these places because these are places that we can come together, that the teachings can be shared, and that we can learn how to conduct ourselves in a better and better way and improve our prosperity and ensure our prosperity long into the future. So if we don't support certain temples or churches or synagogues or mosques or things like this, they're not going to have the support they need. And then therefore, the population isn't going to have a place to come together and learn teachings that are going to ultimately benefit our life. Then the last one here, the Buddha talks about this group of people make proper provision for the safety of otter hunts such that otter hunts may come in the future and live there and those that are already there may reside in comfort. What an otter hunt is, is an enlightened being. There's four stages of enlightenment. It's called stream enter, once returner, non-returner, and otter hunt. An otter hunt is an enlightened being. They no longer experience any discontent feelings whatsoever. They've completely purified and trained their mind, eliminating the 10 fetters or the 10 individual pollutions that are in the mind. And because of this, the individuals aren't causing harm to others, and they may, in some cases, decide to share teachings. But just even having an otter hunt in your community, whether they're sharing teachings or not, is very beneficial to a community. If an arahant, an enlightened being, decides to share the teachings, this is going to help many people in the community to be able to learn and practice and improve the community through that individual choosing to train their mind. But even just having an arahant amongst your community, if they were a politician or a business owner or doing some other kind of work, this would be very beneficial to the community to have an enlightened being in the community because as they interact with others, other people are going to observe their conduct and how they interact and they're going to do things in a harmless way, in a very peaceful and joyful way, which will essentially kind of rub off on others to a certain degree. People will kind of adopt some of that same way of being. So if a population of people make provisions for the safety of enlightened beings to come there in the future and those that are already there to live in comfort and reside in comfort, this will attract more and more enlightened beings to that community and more and more people in that community will be able to learn the teachings and then ultimately observe enlightened beings in practice and be able to adopt some of that same type of conduct and that same type of way of being and training the mind and living harmoniously with others. Let me know what questions you guys have about this chapter. Again, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be able to see your questions, or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Here we have a question coming in on YouTube. It says, does Buddhists consider involving other more advanced civilizations in mankind? Not sure what you mean by that question. Does Buddhists consider involving other more advanced civilizations in mankind? Not sure exactly what you're referring to there. Maybe you can clarify it for me and I can answer it for you. Uh, let me see if we have any questions coming in on Facebook. I don't see any there and there's none in Zoom. So if you could clarify that question for me in YouTube, looks like born in Washington or born in washing machine. <laughs> That's your screen name. If you could uh, clarify that, I will be able to answer your question for you. In the meantime, I'll go ahead and move on to the next chapter, and then we'll come back and look at your clarification there.
This is chapter 33. Maybe I'll go ahead and read this and then some of the other of you guys that are in Zoom, if you'd like to volunteer for the future chapters, that'd be wonderful. So this one is titled, Four Things That Lead to the Continuation of the Wholesome Teachings. There are, monks, these four things that lead to the continuation, non-decline, and non-disappearance of the wholesome teachings. What for? One, here the monk learns discourses that have been well acquired with well set down words and phrases. When the words and phrases are well set down, the meaning is well understood. This is the first thing that leads to the continuation, non-decline, and non-disappearance of the wholesome teachings. Two, again, the monks are easy to correct and possess qualities that make them easy to correct. They are patient and accept instruction respectfully. This is the second thing that leads to the continuation, non-decline, and non-disappearance of the wholesome teachings. Three, those monks who are learned, heirs to the heritage, experts on the teachings, experts on the discipline, experts on the outlines, respectfully teach the discourses to others. When they have passed away, the discourses are not cut off at the root, for there are those who preserve them. This is the third thing that leads to the continuation, non-decline, and non-disappearance of the wholesome teachings. Four, again, the elder monks are not luxurious and complacent, but they discard backsliding and take the lead in solitude. The, they arouse energy for the attainment of the as yet unattained, for the achievement of the as yet unachieved, for the realization of the as yet unrealized. Those in the next generation follow their example. They too do not become luxurious and complacent, but they discard backsliding and take the lead in solitude. They too arouse energy for the attainment of the as yet unattained, for the achievement of the as yet unachieved, for the realization of the as yet unrealized. This is the fourth thing that leads to the continuation, non-decline and non-disappearance of the wholesome teachings. These monks are the four things that lead to the continuation, non-decline and non-disappearance of the wholesome teachings. All right, let me share some things with you that during the lifetime of the Buddha, he knew that he had discovered the truth that leads to enlightenment. That's because his mind was peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and he did it by himself, so he knew he was a Buddha, and he needed to consistently share his teachings over the remaining time of his life to help as many people as possible get to enlightenment. And his ultimate goal was for these teachings to reach the entire world, but he knew it wouldn't be during his lifetime. And that is due to the language that he spoke, that it was isolated to that region of the world, that travel during that time frame was somewhat hindered that it wasn't easy to travel from one part of the world to the other and in order for him to share teachings they weren't written down there was no internet there was no telephone service or live streaming service or anything like that so he would have needed to have physically gone to places and reside there for a significant period of time in order to help people get to enlightenment so he knew that over his 45 year teaching he would help countless people get to enlightenment in that region of the world but it wouldn't be until much later that his teachings would actually reach the entire world and here we are 2500 years later and these teachings are now reaching the entire world through dissemination through books and videos and podcasts we can now live stream and people can connect all over the world we can be anywhere in the world 
from one location to the next in about 48 hours rather than what was going on during the lifetime of the Buddha. So the ability to communicate in a common language, English, that's spoken all over the entire world, that we have the ability to travel and move about the world, be anywhere on the face of the earth in about 48 hours. And we have the internet to be able to now share content, whether it's books or videos or podcasts or other things all throughout the world. So now we're at a time and place where all the things are in place that the teachings can reach the entire world. But the Buddha knew that that wouldn't happen during his lifetime and it would be much later after he died, now 2,500 years later, that this would occur. But nonetheless, he chose to teach about how to maintain these wholesome teachings and continue in the world. And he knew that they would actually decline. He talks about the decline of his teachings over this 2,500 year period. And that then, then there would be a Buddha named Maitreya Buddha that would restore the teachings back into the world in such a way that countless people can get to enlightenment. But nonetheless, he was interested in his teachings being sustained in the world for as long as possible. So that's the guidance that he's giving here about how to sustain his teachings in the world. And then also as Maitreya Buddha teaches, you know, this would be helpful guidance for Maitreya Buddha to be able to understand how to ensure his teachings have longevity in the world. So the first thing that the Buddha is sharing here is that monks, or we can look at this as students as well, learn discourses that have been well acquired with well set down words and phrases. When the words and phrases are well set down, the meaning is well understood. So teachers who are sharing teachings or people who are writing books and sharing videos and podcasts, we should be very attentive to the words that we're using. And those of you that are learning as students, if you have friends or family that are asking you questions, it's important to have well set down words and phrases. If we're haphazardly stringing words together, this wouldn't promote the best understanding of the teachings that would ultimately lead to enlightenment. So there's a certain attention, a certain determination and diligence and dedication to having well set down words and phrases. And I feel like the book series that I share and the content that I share, I feel like that's what I'm working to always ensure that there are well set down words and phrases because that's going to help you with your understanding and ensure that you're able to learn, reflect, and practice to experience the results of eliminating discontentedness from the mind. The next thing that the Buddha shares is that monks are easy to correct possessing qualities that make them easy to correct. They are patient and accept instruction respectfully. So as part of getting to enlightenment, only a Buddha would be able to do that by themselves without the help of any teachers or guides. Everybody else is gonna need teachers and guides to help them along the path. And one of the things that a teacher is doing, aside from presenting the teachings with well set down words and phrases, is they're helping a student to see certain aspects of their mind that they may not be seeing themselves. For example, the ego is in the mind of the unenlightened being. There's a certain amount of arrogance or pride, measuring and comparing. This is called conceit. And oftentimes the ego has a hard time seeing the ego because the ego is so puffed up and is so boastful with this conceit that the mind is so full of conceit that it really helps to have a teacher to be able to point that out. Or if you're clinging to your perceptions, 
or if you're having doubt about the teachings or you're having other things that aren't related to the actual path to enlightenment, it's helpful to have a teacher who is either enlightened or very close to enlightenment to be able to point that out to you in a very polite and respectful way so that you can then see how to improve your life practice. And you would need to be able to patiently and respectfully accept this guidance and instruction. If a student rejects what their teacher is sharing and like, no, 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 I don't have ego. I don't want to hear that. Or no, I'm not clinging to my perception, you know, and they became boastful and conceitful. They wouldn't actually be able to experience enlightenment because they haven't even learned how to be a student yet. They haven't even learned how to be patient and accept guidance from their teacher uh, respectfully. So it's very important that as we build a community of practitioners that have attained enlightenment, that an individual remain easy to correct and possess qualities that make them easy to correct and that they're patient and respectfully accepting the guidance and instruction of a teacher. Even if they disagree with what a teacher is sharing, they might decide to respectfully ask questions to understand it further. Because it's common for a student to disagree with a teacher, but oftentimes when a student is disagreeing with a teacher, oftentimes it's because the student hasn't necessarily understood properly or the teacher maybe isn't communicating in the most thorough way. So if a student remains patient and respectful and asks questions of the teacher, then they can understand, not allowing discontentedness to arise in the mind, but instead remaining patient and respectful, asking for clarification in situations where they need clarification. The third one here, the Buddha is talking about monks who are learned, heirs of the heritage, experts on the teachings, experts on the discipline, experts on the outline, respectfully teach the discourses to others. And then when they pass away, the discourses aren't cut off at their root. So if people have acquired a certain amount of wisdom, it's very important that a certain number of those people decide to share the teachings. Not every enlightened being is going to choose to teach. As I mentioned, there'll be enlightened business owners and politicians and other people, you know, food servers, taxi drivers, things like this. Uh, we'll need all those people to be enlightened in the world. That'll be very helpful for the entire world. But there'll need to be a certain number of people who are sharing the teachings. And the way that this occurs is that an individual might choose to share the teachings and they might have a certain proficiency in communicating the teachings. And people in the community support those teachers to be able to then give up their career and any kind of worldly pursuits like that and be able to focus solely on sharing the teachings. Because if somebody gets to enlightenment and they're a master in the teachings, they have the capability to teach, but they choose not to teach. Then the teachings don't come into the world for other people. So it's very wise for a community of individuals to support someone who is able to share the teachings because then that individual is available for many people in the community to be able to then learn the teachings. If we don't support people in the community to be able to share the teachings as a teacher, then the teachings are going to decline. But if we're interested in supporting the continuation of these teachings as the Buddha is sharing here, then we would find ways to ensure that these people have the opportunity to share because they've become experts on the teachings who are very learned and well-disciplined and understanding the teachings and are able to share them effectively. And then the fourth one the Buddha talks about here is all about complacency and backsliding. If senior members of a community here, the Buddha is referring to elder monks, 
if they are not luxurious and they're not complacent in their practice and they consider backsliding something they're uninterested in. Instead, they stay dedicated to attaining the as yet unattained. So if somebody hasn't attained the jhanas yet, they stay dedicated and arouse energy to attain the jhanas. Or if they haven't attained certain stages of enlightenment, they arouse energy and they stay dedicated and diligent to attaining one of the four stages of enlightenment and continuing to progress towards the stage of enlightenment as an arahant. If they remain uncomplacent, but instead determined, dedicated, and diligent. Now by those senior members of the community remaining dedicated and diligent, not being complacent, then other younger members of the community can see that and use it as a role model so that now those younger generations will also not be complacent. They will not backslide. What backsliding is, is that if you build up your meditation practice to a certain point, for example, and then you go like a day or two without meditating, what backsliding would be is like you allow that to turn into five days or a week or three weeks or five weeks where you haven't been meditating or you haven't been coming to class or you haven't been reading books. You haven't been seeking guidance from your teacher. This is backsliding. But if you remain not complacent, if you remain dedicated, determined and diligent, okay, if you miss a day or two of meditation, get right back on it. Stay dedicated and determined to your meditation practice. If you allow the mind to become complacent, then you're going to experience backsliding and this is going to affect you and it's also going to affect the people around you. If you're a parent, for example, and your children see that you're regularly complacent, that you're unmotivated, unenthusiastic, your students are going to tend to adopt that same way of being. But if you show them like, hey, there's a time to rest, there's a time to relax, but there's also a time to Uh, have energy and be motivated and encouraged and actually do things in the world. And they can learn how to, yes, relax, but also be motivated and encouraged and have energy in the world. They will learn how to live this balanced lifestyle. So it's not only helpful in this case in terms of sharing teachings, but it's also helpful in your household as well that your partners and your children and maybe your employees, if you're an employer, that they see that the boss is diligent and dedicated, that mom and dad are dedicated and diligent. If you live in a partnered relationship, that your partner can see that you're dedicated to the relationship and the operation of the household, that you're not allowing backsliding to occur. But as it relates to the teachings of the Buddha, if we ensure that we're not complacent and we stay dedicated to attaining the as yet unattained, then the younger generation can see that and they will consistently work towards improvement in the condition of their mind through developing their life practice as well. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Again, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I can see your questions, or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. I don't see a clarification question on YouTube, so perhaps that person has stepped away. And I don't see any questions in Facebook either or in Zoom. So that means that you guys must be understanding things to a certain degree. So let me move on to the next chapter. And what I'm going to do with this next chapter, Max, thank you for raising your hand that you volunteered to read. What I'm going to do with this next chapter is basically just help you guys understand it's the exact opposite of the one that we just taught. Max, you can read the next one after this if you like. This particular chapter is just sharing exactly the opposite, that essentially the way that the teachings decline and the way that they disappear is that 
people learn discourses with badly set down words and phrases. And then therefore, the meaning is badly understood. That people are difficult to correct and they're impatient and they do not accept instruction respectfully. That those who are masters and experts on the teachings, they do not share their teachings respectfully. They don't essentially share with students in a respectful manner. And then the last one, the Buddha is talking about how senior members of the community are luxurious. They are complacent. They do backslide. They're not dedicated and determined and diligent. They don't arouse energy to attain the jhanas and attain the four stages of enlightenment. And because of that, it leads to the decline of the teachings. So I'll just move on to the next one because that's just the opposite of the one we just read. So this is chapter 35. Max, if you'd like to read that one, you're welcome to. Thank you, sir. Conditioned objects are impermanent. Monks, conditioned objects are impermanent. Conditioned objects are unstable. uh, Conditioned objects are unreliable. It is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. Monks, Sinaru, the king of mountains, is 84,000 yojanas in length and 84,000 yojanas in width. It is submerged 84,000 yojanas in the great ocean and rises up 84,000 yojanas above the great ocean. There comes to there comes a time, monks, when the rain does not fall for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years, for many hundreds of thousands of years. When rain does not fall, seed life and vegetation, med- uh, medical plants, grasses, and giant trees of the forest wither and dry up and no longer exist. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. There comes a time when after a long time, a second sun appears with the appearance of the second sun, the small, uh, small rivers and lakes dry up and evaporate and no longer exist. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. There comes a time when after a long time, a third sun appears with the appearance of the third sun the great rivers, the Ganges, the Yamuna, the Akaravati, the Sarabu, the Mahi dry up and evaporate and no longer exist. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. There comes a time when, after a long time, a fourth sun appears. With the appearance of the sun, the great lakes 
from which those great rivers originated Anata Sehapapada Rathakara Kamunda Kamala Chidanta Mandakini dry up and evaporate and no longer exist. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable, it is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. There comes a time when, after a long time, a fifth sun appears with the appearance of the fifth sun, the waters in the great ocean sink by a hundred Johannas, 200 Johannas, 300 Johannas, 400 Johannas, 500 Johannas, 600 Johannas, 700 Johannas. The water left in the great ocean stands at the height of seven palm trees, at the height of six palm trees, five palm trees, four, uh, four palm trees, three palm trees, two palm trees, a mere palm tree. The water left in the great ocean stands at the height of seven fathoms, six fathoms, five fathoms, four fathoms, three fathoms, two fathoms, a fathom, 1.8 meters, half a fathom, up to the waist, up to the knees, up to the ankles. Just as in the autumn, when thick drops of rain are pouring down, the waters stand in the hoof prints of cattle here and there. So the waters left in the great ocean will stand here and there in pools, the size of the hoof prints of cattle. With the appearance of the fifth sun, the water left in the great ocean is not enough to e even to reach the joints of one's fingers. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable, it is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. There comes a time when, after a long time, a sixth sun appears. With the appearance of the sixth sun, this great earth and scenario, the king of mountains, smoke, fume, and smolder, just as a potter's fire, when kindled, first smokes, fumes, and smolders. So with the appearance of the sixth sun, this great earth and scenario, the king of mountains, smoke, fume, and smolder, so impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to be free to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. There comes a time when after a long time a seventh sun appears with the appearance of the seventh sun, this Great earth and Sinaru, the king of mountains, burst into flames, blaze up brightly and become one mass of flame. As the great earth and Sinaru are blazing and burning, the flame cast up by the wind rises even to the Brahma world, 
heavenly realm as Sinaru is blazing and burning as it is undergoing destruction and being overcome by a great mass of heat mountain peaks of a hundred Johannes disintegrate mountain peaks of 200 Johannes 300 Johannes 400 Johannes 500 Johannes disintegrate when the great earth and Sinaru the king of mountains are blazing and burning neither ashes nor soot are seen just as when ghee or oil are blazing and burning neither ashes nor soot are seen so it is when this great earth and Sinaru the king of mountains are blazing and burning so impermanent are conditioned objects so unstable so unreliable it is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects enough to become free from strong feelings toward them enough to be liberated from them monks who accept those who have seen the truth would think or understand this great earth and Sinaru, the king of mountains will burn up be destroyed and will no longer exist all right thank you max Essentially, what the Buddha is doing here is he's really honing in on the universal truth of impermanence and talking about conditioned objects. But he's also providing a prediction of the future. And essentially what he's describing here is something that we're seeing right now, which is climate change. Of course, he's describing a second sun, a third sun, a fourth sun, a fifth sun, and so forth. And oftentimes when individuals in the past are predicting certain things, they can't really fathom how certain things are going to occur. So predictions or prophecies aren't necessarily always 100% accurate in the way that they're describing them, but in terms of the way that they're fulfilled, the fulfillment of them is accurate. So the Buddha is describing how essentially the water levels recede and how the earth is heating up and essentially having all these problems due to climate change. And then he's using this to be able to reinforce his universal truth of impermanence, which is independently verifiable. What he taught as part of the universal truth of impermanence is that all conditioned objects will arise, they will change, and they will fade away. What a conditioned object is, is something that arises, changes, and fades away. Essentially, the entire material world is a conditioned object. But there is such thing as an unconditioned object, too. This is something that people oftentimes misunderstand related to the teachings of the Buddha. People think that the Buddha taught that everything is impermanent, but he never said everything is impermanent. He said unconditioned objects are impermanent. They arise, change, and fade away. So for example, your mobile phone is a conditioned object because at one time it wasn't a mobile phone. Bits and pieces and parts were put together for it to arise as a mobile phone. It now changes, it gets scratches, the screen breaks, the software slows down or what have you. And then eventually it'll fade away and it will no longer exist as a mobile phone. Your relationships are impermanent. Your clothing is impermanent. The physical body is impermanent. Your income and your bank account is impermanent. All these things around us are impermanent. They're conditioned objects. They arise, change, and fade away. But there's something called an unconditioned object, like enlightenment itself or 
the natural laws of existence or unconditional love. They don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. So an enlightened being has removed the conditions that are causing the mind to experience discontentedness. And when you remove those conditions, the mind is enlightened because the mind is now unconditioned. And now this enlightened mental state is permanent. And the same thing with the natural laws of existence. The natural laws of existence that existed during the lifetime of the Buddha are the same natural laws that exist now. And that's why his teachings are just as applicable now as they were back then. His teachings are timeless because these natural laws, they don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. So what he described as the teachings that are the natural laws of existence, they're just as applicable during his lifetime as they are now. What has changed and has been affected by impermanence is people's understanding of the teachings or the resources, the books, the things that are explaining the teachings of the Buddha. That is what's been affected by impermanence. But the natural laws themselves are not impermanent. They are unconditioned. So here the Buddha is explaining how all of these environmental things are impermanent. And then he says, you know, who except those who have seen the truth would think or otherwise understand that this great earth will burn up, be destroyed, and no longer exist, right? Because if you understand the universal truth of impermanence, then you understand that the earth and humanity is not permanent. It's not possible for the earth and humanity to be permanent. Oftentimes, human beings are craving and longing and yearning for the world to be permanent or for humanity to be permanent. But for someone who has seen the truth, as the Buddha is explaining here, someone who has seen the truth will understand all these conditioned things are impermanent and it's just not possible for the earth, and he didn't say this, but humanity to be permanent. It's just not possible because of the universal truth of impermanence. And those who understand this universal truth would understand this. So that's what he's essentially getting to. Let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. Again, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be able to see your question and then answer it for you. All right, I'm not seeing any questions here. So I'll move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 36. Punya, would you like to read that one? Maybe Punya stepped away. Okay. Oh, oh there you are. Oh, that's it. It's right. <laughs> okay. Sorry, sorry for uh, some noise. Okay, become unrighteous monks when kings are unrighteous. The royal subordinates, uh, vassals, become unrighteous when the royal subordinates, vassals are unrighteous. Brahmins and householders become unrighteous when Brahmins and householders are unrighteous. The people of the house and countryside become unrighteous. When the people of the house and countryside are unrighteous, sun and moon possess of course. Um, when the sun and moon possess of course, the constellations and the stars possess of course. When the constellations and the stars possess of course, they and night possess of course. When day and night proceeds of course, the months and weeks proceeds of course. When the months and weeks proceeds of course, the seasons and years proceeds of course. When the seasons and years proceeds of course, the winds blow of course at, at random. 
when the wings blow, of course, that as random, the deities become obsessed. When the deities are obsessed, sufficient rain do not fall. When sufficient rain do not fall, the crops live irregularly. When people eat crops that live irregularly, they become short life, ugly, weak, and sickly. Then the katakata explained in the above in detail with the opposite causes, with the opposite results. Monks, when kings are righteous, the royal, the royal subordinates also become righteous. When sufficient rain falls, the crops live in season. When people eat crops that live in season, they become long life. Beautiful, strong, and healthy. All right. Thank you, Ponya. So the Buddha famously teaches this natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, or action and result. And here, what he's doing, which he famously does in a lot of his teachings, is he shows this cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. If this is true, then this is going to happen. If this happens, then this is going to happen. If that happens, this is going to happen. And he's showing you the sequence of events of what leads to people either being beautiful and long-lived or potentially ugly and short-lived. And he's showing how it all comes back to how a leader essentially leading a certain group or population of people. And he essentially is talking about climate change again here as well. But he's showing that the way that this is coming about is based on our conduct. That if a leader of a country, for example, here it was kings that were leading a kingdom, but in our respects here in current times, we might look at our presidents or prime ministers. Some places still have kings, of course, but the leader of a population of people you can even look at this as a boss or as an employer. If you're a manager or a boss at a certain workforce, that if you are unrighteous, meaning that your moral conduct is unwise, then your employees or the population of people, if you're a king or if you're a president or prime minister, the population of people are also going to be unrighteous. So if your moral conduct is unwise, then the people who you lead are going to follow after you and their conduct's going to be unwise too. And then when their conduct is unwise, then the Brahmin and householders as well, right? And then people in the towns and countryside become unrighteous. Then He's talking about how the sun and the moon proceed off course. When this happens, he keeps on going, keeps on going, and explains how the, essentially the weather patterns and the daylight and nighttime and the, the rainfall is affected. And when all of that is affected, then the crops are ripen irregularly and people become short-lived, ugly, weak, and sickly. And you can actually independently verify this for yourself if you look at places like where I grew up in America, Oftentimes, there can be a certain amount of unrighteousness or lack of moral conduct among certain leaders. And then the population of people becomes the same way. And then people uh, are essentially starting to now have difficulties growing certain crops and producing certain food, where now this food is oftentimes imported from other countries. And now the quality of food that people have available to them at their markets and at their stores is a very low quality. And now people are eating that food in 
the population of people, the life expectancy starts to shorten. There might be a certain ugliness or weakness or sickliness in the community. There might be an enormous amount of sickness in a particular community because of this unrighteous behavior that goes all the way back to the conduct of a particular leader. Now, each individual person needs to accept responsibility for their own moral conduct. But if you're in a leadership position, whether you're the leader of a family or you're the leader of a company or you're the leader of a particular country, it's very wise to ensure that you work on developing your wisdom about good moral conduct because the people who are around you and follow you, whether it's your children, your employees, or a population of people, they're going to follow whatever it is that you do because you're setting the example. And this will help a community of people be more prosperous and they'll be able to have food that is actually healthy and that leads to strength and healthiness in the body. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, again, I'm not seeing any questions here. So I'll just move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 37. I'll go ahead and read this one. It's titled Causes of a Decrease in People's Lifespan. The king established guard and protection, but he did not give property to the needy. And as a result, poverty became widespread. Thus, from the not giving of property to the needy, poverty became widespread. From the growth of poverty, the taking of what was not given increased. From the increase of theft, the use of weapons increased. From the increase of weapons, the taking of life increased. And from the increase in the taking of life, people's lifespan decreased. Their beauty decreased. And as a result of this decrease of lifespan and beauty, the children of those whose lifespan had been 80,000 years lived for only 40,000 years. Thus, from the not giving of property to the needy, the taking of life increased, and from the taking of life, lying increased, from the increase in lying, people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 40,000 years lived for only 20,000 years. Thus, from the not giving of property to the needy, the speaking evil of others increased, and in consequence, people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 20,000 years lived only for 10,000 years. Thus, from the not giving of property to the needy, sexual misconduct increased, and in consequence, people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 10,000 years lived for only 5,000 years. And among the generation whose lifespan had been 5,000 years, two things increased, harsh speech and idle chatter, in consequence of which people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 5,000 years lived, some for 2,500 years, and some for only 2,000 years. And among the generation of whose lifespan was two and a half thousand years, craving and anger increased, and in consequence, people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been two and a half thousand years lived for only a thousand years. Among the generation whose lifespan was a thousand years, false opinions increased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been a thousand years lived for only 500 years. 
And among the generation whose lifespan was 500 years, three things increased. Incest, excessive greed, and unwholesome practices increased. And as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 500 years lived some for 250 years, some for only 200 years. And among those whose lifespan was 250 years, these things increased. Lack of respect for mother and father, for aesthetics and Brahmin, and for the head of the community. Thus, from the not giving of property to the needy, lack of respect for mother and father, for aesthetics and Brahmins, and for the head of the community increased. And, in consequence, people's lifespan and beauty decreased. And the children of those whose lifespan had been two and a half centuries live for only a hundred years. Monks, a time will come when the children of these people will have a lifespan of ten years, and with them, girls will be marriageable at five years old, and with them, these flavors will disappear, ghee, butter, sesame oil, molasses, and salt. Among them, sud grain will be the chief food, just as rice and curry are today. And with them, the ten courses of moral conduct will completely disappear. And the ten courses of evil will prevail exceedingly. For those of a ten-year lifespan, there will be no word for moral. So how can there be anyone who acts in a moral way? Those people who have no respect for mother or father, for aesthetics and Brahmins, for the head of the community, will be the ones who enjoy honor and prestige. Just as it is now, the people who show respect for mother and father, for aesthetics and Brahmin, for the head of a community, who are praised and honored, so it will be with those who do the opposite. Among those of a 10-year lifespan, no account will be taken of mother or aunt, of mother's sister-in-law, or teacher's wife, or of one's father's wives, and so on. All will be promiscuous in the world, like sheep, fowl, and pigs, dogs, and jackals. Among them, fierce hostility will prevail, one from another. Fierce hatred, fierce anger and thoughts of killing. Mothers against child, and child against mother. Father against child, and child against father. Brother against brother, brother against sister. Just as the hunter feels hatred, for the beast he stalks. And for those of ten-year lifespan, there will come to be a sword interval of seven days, during which they will mistake one another for wild beasts. Sharp swords will appear in their hands, and thinking, this is a wild beast, they will take each other's lives with these swords. But there will be some beings who do not want to take part in this killing. They went into hiding for seven days, Then at the end of the seven days, they will emerge from their hiding places and rejoice together as one community, saying, Wholesome beings, I see that you are alive, so let us now do good. And through having undertaken such wholesome things, they will increase in lifespan gradually from 10 years back to 80,000 years again. And in that time, an arahant, fully enlightened Buddha named Maitreya will arise in the world. All right. So what the Buddha is explaining is the time frame that we're in right now. He talks about 
this change in terms of all these things that are happening on a moral level and there's this constant degrading of society to the point where people are killing each other people are promiscuous and having casual sex with anybody people are fighting and lying and taking all kinds of difficulties in terms of their moral conduct and he's talking about how the lifespan of individuals is completely declining but essentially what he's referring to is he's talking about the lifespan of humanity like right now we're at a point in time where it is said that if we don't improve our decisions about the environment that humanity only has a very limited amount of time to continue to exist but if this Maitreya Buddha the new Buddha comes into the world and shares teachings that can be helpful and teaches people this good moral conduct and how to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance. Now the entire world can learn these teachings and now the lifespan of humanity can increase back to 80,000 years where we will now exist for another 80,000 years from this point in time. So he's explaining what we're experiencing right now in today's time frame and he's going through all the details and explaining that for us. What questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere in YouTube, Facebook, or Zoom. So I will go ahead and move to the next chapter. There's a lot to read here that will really help you guys if you'd like to read the part that I've shared there. Chapter 38, would somebody like to read Craving, Anger, and Ignorance? Okay, go ahead, Punya. You can read if you like. Wearing <laughs> anger and ignorance, minds wanderers of other communities may ask you, friends, there are these three things. What three? Craving, greed, anger, hatred, and ignorance, devotion, knowing of true reality. These are the three. What friend is the distinction? the disparity, the difference between them. If you are asked this, how would you answer? Miles, if bundlers of other communities should ask you such a question, you should answer them as follows. Foreign grief, foreign is slightly blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing, but slow fade away. Anger, headaches is very blameworthy responsible for wrongdoing, but quick to fade away. Ignorance, delusion is very blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing, and so to fade away. Suppose they ask, but friends, what is the reason an arising craving arises, and arising craving increases and expands? You should answer and attribute objects for one who attempts to an extreme objects, and arisons craving arises, and arisons craving increases and expands. Expands. This frame is the reason an arisons craving arises, and arisons craving increases and expands. Support their arts, but what frame is the reason an arisons anger arises, and arisons anger increases and expands? You must answer are repulsive object for one who attends carelessly to a repulsive, repulsive objects and arising anger arises and arising anger increases and expands. These frames is the reason an arising anger arises and arising anger increases and expands. 
support the ask, but what flames is the reason and arisons is not rents, unknowing of two realities, arises and arisons is not rents, unknowings of two reality, increases and expands. You would answer careless attention for one who attends carelessly and arisons is not rents, unknowing of two reality, arises and arisen is not lunch, and know of true reality increases and expands. This friends is the reason and arisen is not rent, arises and arisens is not rent, and knowing of true reality increases and expands. Support the arts, but what friends is the reason and arisen craving does not arise and arisens craving is abandoned. You should answer an unattractive object for one who attends carefully to an unattractive object. And arisons caring does arise and arisons caring is abundant. The friends is the reason and arisons craving does not arise and arisons claiming is abandoned. Support their ask, but what friends is the reason and arisons anger does not arise and arisons anger is abandoned. You should answer the reparation of the mind by loving kindness for one who attends carefully to the liberation of the mind by loving kindness and arisons and good does not arise and arisons and good is abandoned. This friends is the reason and arisons and good does not arise and arisons and good is abandoned. Suppose they are but what claims is the reason and arising is not rent, unknowing of two reality does not arise and arising is not lens, knowing of two reality is abandoned. You should answer careful attention for one who attends carefully and arising is not lens, unknowing of two reality do not arise and arising is not rent, unknowing of two reality is abandoned. This friends is the reason and arisen is not any. Knowing of two reality does not arise and arisen is not any. Knowing of two reality is abandoned. All right, yes, thank, thank you, Panya. So here the Buddha is introducing you to the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots, also referred to as the three fires of craving, anger, and ignorance. Or some people refer to it as greed, hatred, and delusion. There's other ways to refer to these too. These are the three high-level problems that the Buddha discovered in the unenlightened mind. And he talks about the complications that they promote in the mind. And that as long as you're making decisions through craving, anger, and ignorance, they're going to be unwise decisions that produce unwholesome results. And what you're doing as part of this path to enlightenment is you're uprooting these and you're bringing in the wholesome roots. And when you make decisions through the wholesome roots, which are generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, that will lead to wholesome results in your life. I explain these in volume one, chapter eight in detail. And this is the Buddha's detail on the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. I suggest that if you haven't yet read volume one, chapter eight, that you should go look at that chapter because that's where you'll be able to see very clearly what the three poisons are and explain to you in a way that also shares the antidotes as well. Do you guys have any questions on any of the three poisons? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. 
So I will move on to chapter 39 and I will read this one for you guys. It's titled, Eight Qualities Are Fit to Share This Message. Monks, a monk who is possessed of eight qualities is fit to share this message. What are the eight? Herein, monks, one, a monk is a listener. Two, one who engages others to listen. Three, one who assesses or analyzes. Four, one who recollects, recalls, remembers. Five, one who is a knower or wise. Six, one who is an expounder, so explains. Seven, one skilled in recognizing accordance and non-accordance. Eight, one who is not a maker of arguments. Who to some high assembled council comes, wavers not, nor in discourse fails, nor hides the teachings, nor speaks in doubtfulness, and who being questioned is not agitated. A monk like this is fit to share this message. What the Buddha is describing here is someone who would be capable to go out into the world and share his teachings. And he's giving eight criteria here, eight qualities of what makes an individual a person who can benefit others through sharing the teachings. Because as I mentioned, not everyone who gets to enlightenment is going to necessarily be interested to share the teachings or capable of sharing the teachings. So the Buddha is leaving teachings that helps an individual to understand what they might look at to determine if they would be beneficial to others to go out into the world and actually share these teachings. In order to share these teachings, you need to be a very good listener because students are going to be regularly telling you all the challenges and difficulties that they're struggling with in the world. And oftentimes, the unenlightened mind is not very clear, it's not very concise. So as a student is explaining things that they're talking about and things that they're experiencing, there can sometimes be rambling, there can be you know, a very long-winded story to really share something that could actually be shared in a very short, concise time. So an individual who's gonna share these teachings needs to be a good listener. They need to also be one who can engage others to listen because in order to share these teachings, you're gonna to need to deliver certain discourses. And in your discourse, if you were just broadcasting, 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 people aren't really interested in what you're sharing. They're not engaged in what you're speaking about. So you need to learn how to speak a little bit, ask questions a little bit, speak a little bit, ask questions a little bit, and speak in a way that people are interested in listening to you. So that is a quality that one would need. One who assesses and analyzes. What assessing and analyzing is, is to understand the teachings through investigation and analyzing and examining the teachings. If you were to just believe teachings and then go out and try to communicate those, you're not going to understand the teachings deeply enough because you haven't acquired wisdom through your investigation, reflection, and practice of those teachings. So an individual who ultimately decides to go out and share these teachings through teaching others would need to be really good at investigating and analyzing the teachings, but then also what's going on with people in their lives because as people are sharing things that are going on in their life you need to be able to assess and analyze what's going on and perhaps even ask them questions to be able to further understand what's going on to then be able to share with them the natural law of karma. Then one who recollects or recalls and remembers the teachings. An individual who's going to be able to share these teachings would have the teachings committed to memory and be able to easily talk about them. This is part of what's called the tenfold path. It's the eightfold path that gets you to enlightenment, 
but there's two extra steps for an enlightened being, which is right wisdom and right liberation. Someone who's practicing right wisdom would be able to easily discuss the teachings and be able to have them very readily to be able to discuss because they can recall them or remember them. They've committed them to memory. In order to get to enlightenment, you're going to need to have a certain recollection of the teachings because as you learn them, you're going to need to commit them to memory so that you can then apply them in your daily life. So as the mind moves closer and closer to enlightenment, you would have needed to recall the teachings and commit them to memory. And then as you go to share the teachings, you would need to be able to recall them or remember them in order to be able to share them with others. One who is a knower or wise, that in order to get to enlightenment, somebody would need to know the teachings. They would need to be very wise. They would need to be a very good student before you could ever be a teacher. The very best teachers are the very deepest practitioners. If someone's a very deep practitioner, that they know the teachings inside and out, it's because they've investigated them, they can remember them, and now they're able to start communicating them because they know the teachings, they're very wise. So the very best teachers are actually starting out as the very deep practitioner. And then one who is an expounder or who can explain the teachings. Just seeing the words of the Buddha in the discourses and written books, that's helpful that a student needs to understand the teachings to be able to read the discourses. But a individual who's going to be a teacher and share these teachings are going to need to expound on the meanings. Because as you share the teachings of the Buddha, students are going to ask questions. And they're going to ask very detailed questions. And they're going to ask various types of questions and kind of looking at the teachings from different angles. And a teacher is going to need to be able to expand upon the teachings rather than just knowing the teachings straight and clean, which is helpful. You're going to also need to be able to expand on them as students ask various points and various points of clarification related to the teachings. One skilled in recognizing accordance and non-accordance. What this is related to is if you're a teacher and you're sharing teachings with a student, for example, around right speech, and then if you can see when your students are practicing right speech according to the teachings, then that is helpful because you can recognize that your student is practicing right speech according to the teachings. But also where a student isn't practicing the teachings of something like right speech, according to the teachings, a teacher is going to need to be able to observe that and then be able to respectfully offer guidance and instruction to help that student improve their speech. So a teacher who's going to help others get to enlightenment, they're going to need to be able to recognize accordance and non-accordance. And the way that one gains that quality is through their own practice. So by being a very deep practitioner themselves and having improved their moral conduct and their mental discipline and their wisdom to now move their mind closer and closer to enlightenment, because they've been able to do that for their own practice, they'll be able to help others see this accordance and non-accordance to the teachings to then help them to be able to get to enlightenment. Then, of course, the last one here, the Buddha shares, not a maker of arguments. If somebody is arguing, they're not enlightened. They're not even in the first stage of enlightenment if they're actually arguing and they're argumentative. So an individual needs to get to the point where they're disinterested in any arguments whatsoever. Because if somebody goes out into the world to share these teachings and they're arguing with students, then how would those students ever be interested in learning from this person when they can't even control their mind to not argue and share the teachings if they're being argued? 
argumentative and divisive and speaking in non-harmonious ways and they're looking to separate people and being argumentative and bitter and hostile, they're not going to be able to share the teachings in a way that people would be interested to learn from them. So the Buddha sums this up with one who to some high assemblies and councils come. What he's saying here is like people who are like in our day and time, maybe like kings or queens or government officials and people like this. If an individual is really wise and they have these eight qualities that the Buddha teaches, then they will be able to teach all levels of society. Even though an enlightened being doesn't view society as having different levels, they just view everybody as equal. In society, people view different levels of society. So people who are at different levels of society would be interested in learning from an individual who's very wise. So these high assembly councils would come to this person for guidance. And during that time, when maybe like a famous superstar or a celebrity or a president or politician or a king or queen comes for guidance, they would not waver in their discourses, would not fail, and they wouldn't hide the teachings from other people. So they would be able to be calm and confident even when they're talking to a king or a queen or a president or somebody that's in a high position or a very wealthy business owner or a celebrity or something like this. And they're not hiding the teachings and they're not speaking in doubtfulness. Somebody who's very close to enlightenment or enlightened they would not have any doubt in their mind. They would know 100% certainty that these teachings indeed led to their enlightenment, and they would have no doubt whatsoever. They would be very confident. The opposite of doubtfulness is confidence. So they would have confidence in the teachings themselves and be able to speak to anybody, not hiding the teachings and not wavering in their discourses and in their discussions. And then as they're being questioned, they're not agitated. Because somebody who is not enlightened, if a student was asking regular questions, they might get agitated. But someone who's either close to enlightened or enlightened, they know that questioning is part of the process. That somebody wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without asking for clarification and being able to understand the teachings more deeply. So a person who's sharing these teachings, who would be very helpful at sharing the teachings, they would need to understand that constant questions is what's going to occur, and they shouldn't be agitated when people are asking them questions. So that is part of the process of being able to share the teachings. So the Buddha is sharing all this that an individual who can teach in this way is fit to share this message, that they're able to then help other people to get to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have about these eight qualities that the Buddha is sharing here? You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere, so we'll just go to this last chapter. Is there someone in Zoom that would like to read this last chapter? It's quite a short one. Okay, if nobody's interested to... Oh, there's Panya. Go ahead, Panya. <laughs> I'm sorry. I will not speak of falsehood even as a joke, even so unwise and empty. Rahulahula is the recluse chief life factory of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. So true, Rahula, when one is not ashamed, to tell a deliberate lie, this is no evil, I say. That's one who's not doomed. Therefore, Laula, you should train that. You should train this. I will not speak about 
Okay, thank you so much. So here, keep in mind that the Buddha is teaching his son. His son's name is Rahula. Oftentimes people think that the Buddha left his family and turned his back and never came back. But that's not true. The Buddha left for six years, leaving his family in a royal palace, very well taken care of. And then he went out into the world to work on his own mind and getting to enlightenment. And then having done that, he was able to then return and help countless people, including his family. His son becomes the very first novice to ordain. His wife ordains, his mother ordains, his cousins and stuff ordained, to the point where his father came to him in misery and displeasure and pleaded with him to stop to ordain members of the royal family because he was craving permanence, of course, that he wanted this royal family to continue. And because they were all leaving to join the Buddha, there were not the ability for the royal family to continue. So here, the Buddha is speaking to his son, Rahula. And he's saying that the recluseship or the life practice of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, it's unwise or it's empty because they're interested in telling deliberate lies. So they haven't really built a solid foundation for their life practice yet. When one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that one would not do. So this is very helpful for you that if you have friends or other people involved in your life, employees or others, who are telling deliberate lies, if they're telling deliberate lies, the Buddha is saying that there's no evil that they would be unwilling to do. So you need to decide for yourself in what situations would you be willing to continue in that relationship? Or are you willing to continue in a relationship with somebody who's telling deliberate lies? That it's very unwise to tell deliberate lies and the Buddhists saying that there's no evil that they would not be willing to do. So if you have a life partner, if you have employees, if you have other people around you telling deliberate lies, you should take that into consideration that there's potentially other evils that they're willing to do and that those things can affect you because you're choosing to be their friend or their life partner or having them as your employee or coworker. So that's something that you need to consider about cultivating relationships around you of people that aren't telling lies. That's very wise to ensure that you have that as part of the people that you associate with. So the Buddha says that he will not speak a falsehood even as a joke. And he's encouraging his son to train his mind in the same way, to not speak a falsehood even as a joke. That's how much the Buddha understood the natural law of gamma. Because in the five precepts, which I'm going to be talking about tomorrow in the group learning program, that he teaches not to have falsehoods, not to speak with false speech, to be a true speaker, one to be relied on, not a deceiver of the world, because you can develop barami, the one who people listen to. This word barami, it's a Thai word that means the one who people listen to. But if you were to tell lies consistently, people aren't going to be influenced by what you share. They're not going to consider you as being trustworthy. They're going to look at you as a deceiver. and You're going to have a really hard time in your personal and professional life when you're telling lies. Even as a joke, if you can get to the point where you're not even telling lies as a joke, then your practice is really solid and people will know that whenever this person opens their mouth, they're always speaking the truth. Because if you can imagine a Buddha sharing teachings that are the truth and he encourages people to investigate his teachings, if he's in some cases sharing the teachings that are the truth, but in other cases he's lying, even as a joke, 
then people are going to have a very hard time trusting what he's saying. So as a Buddha, one who's sharing the teachings in the world, a Buddha would be interested to speak the truth, the Tathagata, the one who's discovered the truth, the one who shares the truth. But then even when they tell jokes, they don't tell a falsehood because they're not interested in other people around them thinking that they're sometimes telling the truth and sometimes not. That's not going to promote the most success in being able to share the teachings as a teacher in the world. Anybody who's interested in getting to enlightenment, it would be wise to practice and train your mind in such a way that you're not telling a joke even as a falsehood, especially those who are sharing the teachings, because you need the students to be able to consider you as trustworthy, one to be relied on, not a deceiver of the world, that you're dependable, so that when you share teachings, you're speaking the truth, but also in your personal life, even when you're telling jokes, you're also speaking the truth. And now people will become accustomed to you always speaking the truth. And you'll find that you'll be more influential and more beneficial in all your relationships and within your community. Any questions on this particular chapter? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be sure to answer your questions. Looks like we have a question here in YouTube. If we tell lies to save our life or others, will that be okay? Or white lies in the same vein? I don't suggest ever telling a lie for any reason whatsoever. There's ways to speak truth and still save your life as well. You don't need to actually lie in order to save your life. There's ways to ensure that you're telling the truth in order to ensure that you're practicing. If you tell a lie, you think that that lie is beneficial. That's what a white lie is. There's no such thing as a beneficial lie. You can actually train your mind to the point where you never lie about anything whatsoever. It just takes training and perhaps being very selective and very conscious about your word choice and how you're actually saying something. Like one of the common questions I get around this is sometimes a man might ask me like, what do I do if my partner comes to me and says, how do I look in this dress? Or how do I look in these pants or these clothes? And what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to lie in that situation just to make her feel good or make him feel good? And my answer is no, you know, you should not lie. But telling the truth isn't necessarily going to be well received. So you can say things like, well, as long as you enjoy what you're wearing, that's what's important. Or you can say, you know, I think your smile is so beautiful. Let's go have fun. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. I love you no matter what you're wearing, right? So you don't have to say, oh, that looks ugly, right? Because that's not going to be very well received and it can make problems in your relationship. So telling the truth in that way would cause difficulties. But also lying and saying they look beautiful or handsome when they really don't is going to be problematic as well. Essentially what this person is looking for is they're looking for confidence. So if you can give them confidence and say, I think you look beautiful no matter what you wear, or I think you look handsome no matter what you wear, right? If you can share that, then you can have a really healthy relationship. You haven't lied and you've essentially told the truth. So selecting your word choice can really ensure that you're not telling any lies. There's no such thing as a beneficial lie. So always tell the truth even as a joke. Very wonderful question. All right. I don't see any questions on Facebook either. So I will go ahead and just in class and wrap it up by sharing what we're going to be doing in tomorrow's class. Tomorrow we're in the group learning program and in our group learning program, we're studying chapter seven in volume one. 
Volume 1, Chapter 7 is titled The Five Precepts, A Householder's Guide to Daily Practice. Here, you're going to understand the five individual precepts that lead to harm in the world. And if you learn them and you practice them, you'll be able to significantly reduce the harm you're causing in the world. Therefore, you'll significantly reduce the unwholesome results that you experience in the world. If you've been taught that the Buddha taught the five precepts and he said, no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, no intoxicants, this isn't what the Buddha taught. They're not accurate translations. He provided much more illuminating language than that that will better inform your practice. When you hear, you know, no, 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 none of this, it sounds like rules. It sounds like commandments. That's not what the Buddha shared. He shared illuminating language that will help you to understand the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result, the results of your decisions. So when you understand what he actually shared in his own words as part of the five precepts, and then I help you to see with clarity how to apply those five precepts in today's world with all the different things that we have in today's world, you'll be able to then navigate this natural law of gamma gaining wisdom because in reality, it's not a black and white thing. The five precepts aren't black and white. There's a significant gray area that you're going to need to understand and be able to navigate. So I'm going to be sharing with you the words of the Buddha. I'm going to be relating that to things that you experience in your day-to-day life now. And we'll be able to have discussion. You'll be able to get clarification on that so that you can then gain the wisdom of understanding this natural law of gamma as it relates to the five precepts. And then your practice will be more informed and you'll be able to make wise decisions that leads to wholesome outcomes. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing the fourth part of our four-part series on Buddhist chanting. And of course, next Saturday in our Pali Canon and English study group, we're going to be moving on to the next 10 chapters. That's chapters 41 through 50. So if you'd like to download these books at buddhadailywisdom.com and read them prior to class, that would be really helpful for you. You can also print the book if you like, or you can order printed copies on Amazon, and this will be able to help provide you what you need in order to participate in the Pali Canon in English study group so that you can read the chapters beforehand because there's a certain amount of content that I've shared that we don't actually cover in the class. So by you reading the book and coming to class, you'll get the most benefit out of the class. So thank you all for attending. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for reading, for those of you guys that read. And most importantly, thank you for your dedication and diligence to continue the teachings in the world and ensuring that you're using well-set-down words and phrases, the words of the Buddha, to be able to learn and practice his teachings and guide you in life and guide you in developing this life practice to train your mind on the path to enlightenment. So we'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.